Welcome to Data Skeptic. Data Skeptic brings you discussions about how data is changing our world. Our interviews are conversations with thought leaders in topics like data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Last week on Data Skeptic, I told you we were going to be discussing artificial intelligence on the show for a few months. One of the things I pointed out was that presently, we have only one very excellent specimen of a machine that is intelligent. It's the human brain. If a computer ever starts to think, sure, maybe it will do that in some exotic new way. The machines we're currently building bear almost no resemblance to the brain. Sure, we call certain things neural networks, but it's more of an homage to the brain than an actual simulation of the brain. Now, is building something precisely like the brain the only way to emerge intelligence? Uh, Probably not. We don't really know. But you have to admit, it's the one known solution to this problem. So we're going to start off all our discussions here asking a few questions about the brain. I think it goes without saying that however much science has learned about the brain, there's probably at least an order of magnitude more that we don't yet know. So how does one measure the brain? What data is generated by those measurements? And how can that data be analyzed, processed, and studied? I had a chance to visit the Loney Laboratory of Neuroimaging at USC last year, and I wanted to share some of the interesting things that I learned there with you here. We're going to spend this week talking with members of the Loney Lab, people that study the function of the brain. Their work requires extremely advanced measurement devices and a powerful data platform to support research. We'll get into that and more on our visit to Loney. This is going to be a two-parter, by the way, so join us again next week for the follow-up. Thirty years ago, several scientists were having a conversation over a couple of beers. One scientist began to describe what was back then a new technology using a specialized computer system that could link together early satellite imagery of the Earth. Among the group of scientists was an intrigued neuroscientist who then began to wonder if that computer system could do the same thing for pictures of the brain. We are working very hard at trying to think about science and neuroscience as an integrational pursuit, as opposed to, you know, individual measurements that are treated independent of one another. That was Dr. Arthur Toga you just heard. He was the neuroscientist who thought about mapping the brain when he saw that technology had advanced for satellite imagery. The computer science contributions to neuroscience are tightly interwoven now, more so than ever before, and it will continue to become a mutually dependent partnership because these data are really complicated. And, you know, the brain works as a symphony. You can't just take out the trombone section or the violin section and understand how the brain works. That's, that's an absurd construct, and it's, in fact, what we often try and do unsuccessfully. As director of the USC Mark and Mary Stevens Neuroimaging and Information Institute, Dr. Toga has built one of the largest data collections of human brain images in the world. His team at the Institute's Lab of Neuroimaging, or LONI, combines the power of computer science with the study of brain science to map brain image data in an unprecedented way. As you may know, medical imaging isn't new at all, but Dr. Toga wants to make the most of these scans through the power of volume. His team's quest is to digitize and map the brain to find answers about neurodegenerative diseases. In the first part of our two-part episode on the lab, we'll talk about data collection in brain imaging and the Loney pipeline. We'll continue our coverage in the second episode, where we'll talk more about how researchers can gain insights about the human brain and their current challenges, and also what all that has to do with data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. 
this is really the field that's driving computational neuroscience and driving our field in medical imaging in particular, because there is really so much data when you look at imaging data. And it's almost impossible for a radiologist or for a clinician to compute, analyze, and then translate what all this data means. That was the voice of Ming Law, and I'm uh, the director of neuroradiology at USC Keck School of Medicine, and I'm also the medical director at the Stevens uh, Institute for Neuroimaging and Informatics. We'll hear more from Meng in our second episode. Let's get into one of the lab's primary data-generating processes, the Magnetic Resonance Imaging Machine, or MRI machine. MRI is a fantastic example of how a measurement tool gets pushed to extremes. Neurologists found the results of early MRI machines to be incredibly useful, and they demanded higher resolution, amongst other things. With every breakthrough on the engineering side, researchers get clearer and clearer pictures of the brain's finer details. Of course, higher resolution means more data, and perhaps the need for a few data scientists to manage it. So we all know, crudely speaking, an MRI is a picture of the brain, but what exactly is it measuring? When I get the raw data, what do I actually have? What does it represent? So MRI is basically trying to measure or image brain in an indirect way. This is Parshit Saperband. I'm currently a postdoctoral project specialist in laboratory of neuroimaging. I want to personally thank Farshid for making it possible for me to visit the lab and helping out so much with all of our questions about their work. Farshid's work includes using some machine learning models to try and understand processes of the brain. Every successful machine learning project begins by deeply understanding your data set. So let's get back to the MRI. So when you put a person inside a scanner, the person will lie in a very strong magnetic field. So all the protons in the brain will start to spin um, in the direction of the magnetic field that they are lying in. I would say in a simpler term, we're actually measuring the frequencies of the protons in the brain. And then we try to localize where those spins come from. And that will the relation that we will be acquiring with MRI. The MRI will be measuring the proton frequencies and then it try to correlate it and relate it to spatial information. So in a small example, if you look at a part of the brain which has a lot of water inside of it, so you will have the protons will have more freedom, they can spin easier and you make it more signal there. But if you look at a part from tissue of the brain or from bone, there will be less water there, less proton spins and less signal. So this is how you relate what's there. The size of the MR image, it's really depend on the resolution that you are using, the field of view, or the type of the acquisition that you're using. If you're using a static imaging just to capture the structure of the brain, with say a resolution of voxels of one millimeter, which voxels are basically the pixels of a 3D image. So for a voxel resolution of one millimeter, if the field of view that you're imaging is say a cube of 20 centimeter, you may have like a matrix of 200 by 200 by 200. And if you use a format that requires 32 bits to store each of those voxels, you may not need a large space to store that data set, maybe a few megabytes. But if you're scanning with super high resolution and sometimes dynamic imaging or a functional imaging where you acquire images in a temporal domain, so you have your structural images and also their changes in temporal domain, you may end up having gigabytes of data set. So you basically convert the magnetic resonance to electrical signals. And then you will try to relate the frequencies of the protons from different parts of the brain to their special locations. 
there are standards for using the medical imaging, which is DICOM format, where when you get the data out of the MRI machine, they are already converted to that format. DICOM, by the way, stands for Digital Imaging and Communications in Medicine. Medical imaging data are typically stored and transferred in the DICOM format. But another popular format is the Neuroimaging Informatics Technology Initiative, or NIFTY, which has been widely adopted by scientists in the neuroimaging community. That there are many softwares can read them. So you have now a matrix of numerical data that you can load to your software for your code. So at the end, your MR image will consist of a numerical matrix including your data and a header that provides the information about the scan, like what type of sequence parameters you use, the date of the scan, the machine, location, things like that, that may be handy for analyzing the data. I would say one of the main advantages of MRI is that it allowing us to look at the live brain with fine details. But still, those fine details, when I'm saying fine details, this is still in the scale of one millimeter resolution. And this is still very far from the molecular structure or neuronal structures that are underneath that layer of the resolution that we can get. For example, in one millimeter of an MRI image, that if we look at the gray matter of the brain, where the neuron lives, there may be millions of neurons in that one voxel that at the end represent by one grayscale number. The more you push the resolution, the more you can see about the microscopic or submillimeter information of the brain, where most of the exciting neuroscientific things are happening in that scale. As best I can tell, MRI with one millimeter of resolution is state-of-the-art. These images are valuable to neurologists. Yet if millions of neurons are summarized into one single voxel, it seems like we're not yet able to measure the most fundamental mechanics of the brain. In other words, the idea of taking enough images to eventually simulate the brain as of today remains very much science fiction. Yet, by analogy, if I want to learn what a particular computer is doing, I don't necessarily need to inspect the assembly language code running at its very core. I don't need to peek into its registers. Loney's mission statement states that they strive to improve our understanding of the brain in health and disease. Trying to better understand neurological disease and eventually cure it is in some ways no longer science fiction. Something like Alzheimer's disease has really been a, a great catalyst to cooperative science. By combining the efforts of the data collection and then utilizing the expertise of scientists that either might be neurobiologists or even others in other disciplines to weigh in and, and perhaps try to devise new analytic strategies, interpret these data in innovative ways. One of the problems is, is that the diagnosis and the phenotype of an Alzheimer's dementia patient has some overlap with some other similar diseases. We think that there's considerable overlap between what we call vascular dementia and Alzheimer's dementia, even though pathophysiologically they may be or they may have different etiology. So for us to figure out you know, what is truly Alzheimer's dementia, what is truly vascular dementia, you know, what is truly dementia caused by some other causes, we need these tools because there are so many factors, whether it's genetic factors, imaging factors, laboratory factors, blood tests and blood biomarkers that tell us one way or the other. As someone that doesn't look at a lot of brains, all brains look the same to me. Or at least that's what I thought until Farshid showed me a few of the images the lab analyzed for an Alzheimer's study. One image showed the brain without the disease. And in contrast to a brain image that had the disease, a rather advanced case of Alzheimer's, 
I was struck by how obvious it was which one was which. But this is too late what we can capture. So before that stage, we have things that are happening in molecular level that may lead to changes in microscopic scale that may lead to cell loss or death of neurons. And that will lead to a more system level or a structural level that we can see by MRI. Now, imagine if we can push the resolution of the MRI to a level that we can get some information about the microstructure of the brain, maybe not the individual neuron, but if we can get a statistical summary or some more information about the microstructure, we can start to detect those changes way in advance. And then when we can do therapeutic planning, testing interventions, slowing down the progress and things like that, or even understanding of the brain itself. Understanding of the brain is exactly what I'm curious about. At the end of the day, the brain is a system that takes in a wide array of inputs, processes them, and then outputs signals to the muscles to tell them which one should move and by how much. While we wait for the technology to allow us to ask more fundamental questions about the interactions and microstructure of the brain, there's already a lot of data useful for research. Most of my personal interest in the brain relates to what it might teach me about how a machine with artificial general intelligence might be constructed. Somewhat ironically, instead of taking insight from the brain into machine learning, machine learning is actually becoming an increasingly useful tool for the study of the brain. In other areas of health, machine learning keeps making headlines in the way it's helping on a variety of different diagnosis tasks. Last year on Data Skeptic, I interviewed Pranav Rajprakar, one author on the paper Cardiologist-Level Arrhythmia Detection with Convolutional Neural Networks. Several other diseases have been readily identified at or above human level with machine learning techniques. But this impact has not yet penetrated as strongly into neurological diseases. Do all neurodegenerative diseases have some feature that relates them to one another? Well, maybe. Uh, yet in neurological disease, we have not been quite as successful. Uh, and I think as we do survive those other maladies, we'll see increasing percentages of people suffering from neurologically related disorders. It's a blessing and a curse to have the data that we can get from uh, MRIs these days. We can collect time course data through functional imaging. We can collect very high resolution structural data. And we can collect a fusion MRI data that kind of gives us a structural map of how the different areas of the brain are connected. My name is Ryan Kabeen, and I'm a postdoc in the lab working with Dr. Toga. And uh, my focus is mostly on methods development and toolsmithing. So I work closely with neuroscientists and clinicians in the lab to understand their research problems and workflows and to figure out how computational tools can help their work. One of the projects of the lab is the Loney Pipeline. The Loney Pipeline is a free workflow application primarily aimed at computational scientists. With the Loney Pipeline, users can quickly create workflows that take advantage of all the greatest tools available in neuroimaging, genomics, and bioinformatics. I got a demo of the software. Obviously, I didn't have a lot of time to appreciate the full breadth of what it does, but what I did see was an application that abstracted away a lot of the technical details, places where I usually like to get my own hands dirty, and it exposed a straightforward interface for computational neuroscientists. The workflow seemed to be the core object of the application, as I understand it. A workflow is like an ETL job which also does some processing at the end and analysis. Most of you already know ETL is Extract, Transform, and Load. Loney Pipeline appeared to me to be a sophisticated software suite for doing distributed computing and some interesting data engineering work specialized for the field. 
The Loney Pipeline is one of the tools that makes it possible for researchers to abstract away a lot of the headaches of big data and focus specifically on asking questions about the brain. There's a lot of different ways we can look at the brain with MRI. And, you know, one of the main challenges is to understand those simultaneously. So this is multimodal neuroimage analysis. So one of the things I'm working on is developing tools to simultaneously visualize all these different views on the brain and also quantitate things so that we can understand, you know, specifically what's changing in certain diseases and development. So, you know, it starts off with a data set that's on the order of gigabytes. But of course, you know, what we do is we do a lot of modeling of it. So we extract models of the services, of curves, of networks, and it typically balloons uh, to be a lot bigger after that, once we do all that processing. And then after that, I've got software packages for loading up the different representations of the imaging data. So I try to make that as transparent to the users as possible. That's kind of one of the goals of my work is minimizing the headaches that people have with kind of data wrangling. So basically, we're developing the software package called the Quantitative Imaging Toolkit. And it's meant to be a platform for visualization, so kind of interactively exploring imaging data sets. So I would say that, you know, visual visualization isn't distinct from statistics and machine learning because, you know, we have to summarize these data sets to make any sense of them. It's you can't look at the raw data and really appreciate it in its raw form. You have to do processing of it. And a lot of that is, you know, saying let's simplify it by fitting some model to the data. So we might collect 300 measurements in every pixel with the diffusion MRI data set. And then we can fit any number of different models to summarize to say, you know, what's happening kind of in a more interpretable way. I think one of the things we can do as tool developers is make it easier to translate these nice new methods into actual use. So kind of underlying all this is this module framework that uh, I'm developing to kind of ease the transition of new methods into actual applications. So, you know, one of the challenges is, you know, that there's a lot of brilliant methods developers who come up with this great new method and it gets implemented as a MATLAB script, for example, and they move on to another project. And a lot of times it kind of stays in that prototypical phase and doesn't get used by anyone. Unless you're already the most brilliant person in the whole world, there's always more to learn. Whether you're a data scientist, aspiring data scientist, or armchair listener, I bet you've got some gaps in your education. What do you need more of? Computer science? Probability? Linear algebra? Machine learning? All of the above? Consider if Brilliant.org could be an accessible way for you to learn. Brilliant's courses provide you with the foundations to master basic concepts like data structures and algorithms. Whether you're looking for foundational things like that, or you want to try Brilliant out just to stay fresh, there's always more courses to move on to. Artificial neural networks are a quick dive into the cutting-edge computational methods for learning. The machine learning course teaches advanced quantitative techniques to analyze data. Brilliant is fun and interactive. It's great for learning and retention. How many of you have books on your shelf that you bought with the best of intentions of reading? Brilliant is so much better than picking up a textbook. Find out for yourself by visiting brilliant.org slash data skeptics. It's typical for these data sets to be four-dimensional, but that fourth dimension can mean different things depending on the image. So functional MRI, you know, the fourth dimension is time. You're seeing what's happening. There's a, another way to look at the brain using a diffusion MRI where that fourth dimension is kind of just sampling 3D space. You can imagine that diffusion MRI is this tool for probing kind of what's happening to water molecules at a molecular level. Uh, when I say diffusion, you can imagine it's the same thing as, you know, when you take a glass of water, you drop some ink in, it kind of spreads out. And it turns out, you know, that water molecules are doing that, you know, everywhere in the brain. And that's a very useful uh, marker of the tissue around water. So you can look at water, it's inside an axon, for example, and imagine that it's constrained in how it can diffuse by, you know, the walls of the axon. And it turns out this is something that we can measure with MRI. It's completely amazing. I think I, 
I never get tired of that. <laughs> so when you talk about mapping out the brain, I would imagine you could build a case to say, you know, all human brains are similar because they are, but obviously they're all very unique and that we're all very different people. What is it you're mapping exactly? Is it the physical structure? Uh, how can you generalize what's actually being captured at the lab? Right. So we're trying to characterize patterns of similarity across brains. You know, we want to identify neuroanatomical areas, you know, that are consistent across people. And you said there are a lot of individual differences. So that's a very important feature. So we try to understand, you know, you know, what's common among people as they develop and also as they age and what's common in certain diseases. Maybe there's patterns of neurological change. So we're working on how to detect those kind of using computational approaches. So it seems like then if our goal is early detection, we have, you know, the raw MRI data, we have some post-processing, we have analysis that can compare structures, and maybe we perhaps even if in a patient who's at great risk, we have some snapshots in time so we can look at historicals. There's a great wealth of data here we can produce, capture, and analyze. What does it take to look, sift through this massive mound of observations about the brain and really come back with a useful predictor? Is this something a clinician does, or can we get machine learning to do this? This is one of the main challenges in post-processing the MRI images, especially these days with the functional imaging that not only are higher in resolution, you also have more temporal information or in uh, other types of MRI, like diffusion MRI, you have the same problem. So I guess there are multiple ways of dealing with these issues. Sometimes people use, take the advantage of the redundancy of the information in the data and use that as a prior knowledge for compression and handling the data in that way. Like when you have images that look pretty much similar to each other, you can store the first one. And for the next image, you can only store the differences between these two images. Now for the second image, you have a much smaller data. And the idea is, you know, that we can develop tools, but we need to really work closely with domain experts to understand, you know, what are their driving problems and what are the workflows they use to answer questions about whatever they're studying. And, you know, and by examining how they approach research, we can make better tools. And ultimately, we can provide a way for them to think differently about their research and hopefully answer hypotheses or answer questions related to hypotheses, but also generating new hypotheses, you know, kind of discovering, aha, there's something new there that I hadn't thought about before. And I think that's a mark of a really good visualization. Now that researchers have the tools available to work with that sort of data, what types of analysis do they actually want to do? So my work focuses on doing microstructural imaging, mainly using diffusion MRI. Diffusion MRI is a type of MRI acquisition where it's sensitive to water displacement in the brain. So you can measure how much water was moved inside the brain during the scan. So if you start to repeat this measurement from different direction and use geometrical modeling, you can relate what you observe from water displacement to what's happening underneath each voxel that you're acquiring. So for example, if I image a brain from different directions and realize that the water displacement was much higher in direction A compared to a perpendicular direction, I can assume that probably the neuronal or connection in the brain are aligned in that direction that the water displacement was higher. And in the perpendicular direction, probably the barriers and the boundaries of neurons uh, avoid the water to move in that direction. Or, for example, if I measure water displacement long enough, uh, the water inside the cells will move and then they will hit the boundary of the cell and they won't move any further. So at some point, the water displacement trend can change. So I can use mathematical modeling to relate those to realize maybe the size of the cell or the amount of cells that are inside the voxels. And so this gives you a way to look at the microstructural information of the brain. 
Diffusion MRI allows researchers to detect changes in the brain under very early stages of a disease or some neurodevelopmental condition. I would say understanding the underlying mechanism of the changes in micro scale level would be the main application. And it can vary in different neurological diseases or neuroscientific questions. If I want to know what neurology can teach me about artificial intelligence, naturally, the data that will be useful comes in the form of MRI measurements. The technology has been improving, getting down to finer and finer grain resolution. Do we need to observe the brain in higher resolution to learn about it? Obviously not. But whatever hints the brain might give us in the near future that relate to AI, they're going to be at a higher level of abstraction than the individual neuron. Given the current state of the technology, the data pipeline, as well as the analysis and visualization tools, what questions can we now ask about the brain? That's next time on Data Skeptic. Today's show was produced by Christine DeLeon, edited by Christine and myself. Next Monday and every Monday this year, we're publishing a feature of the week on the dataskeptic.com blog. It takes two seconds just to check it out and see if it's cool or not. I promise it will be at least half the time. If you can't remember to check every Monday, get on our mailing list and we'll drop the feature of the week in your inbox. This coming Monday I'm excited about, we're revisiting the topic of word clouds. I think you already know how I feel about them, but there's some follow-up. I'm going to leave you guys with a quick teaser. Former guest of the show and host of the podcast 15 Credibility Street, Sharon Hill, has a new book out. Stay tuned for the details. Hello, this is Sharon Hill, creator of DoubtfulNews.com and the 15 Credibility Street podcast. I have a new book from McFarland Publishing called Scientifical Americans, The Culture of Amateur Paranormal Researchers. Scientifical means attempting to be scientific and do science, but falling short. This book is the first full examination of the rise of amateur research and investigation groups in America and how they do or don't use science to investigate ghosts, UFOs, and cryptids like Bigfoot and lake monsters. I place these thousands of paranormal explorers into the historical context of their subject areas, chart the influence of paranormal-themed media and the internet, and examine what it means to do science and how amateurs can contribute. Paranormal believers, skeptics, and persons of all opinions in between will find Scientifical Americans to be a unique view of the modern relationship between science and society, as well as our engagement with paranormal themes in popular culture. Purchase the book through your favorite bookseller or an Amazon Kindle version. For more info, visit my website at SharonAHill.com.